This is Jim Fallon, Director of Project Narrative at The Ohio State University, and I'd like to welcome you to the Project Narrative podcast. In each episode, a narrative theorist selects a short narrative or a series of related narratives to read and discuss with me or another host. Today, I'll be talking with Brian McHale, who has selected a series of poems that contain significant narrative gaps. At Brian's suggestion, we're calling this episode Stories with Holes. Brian McHale is Arts and Humanities Distinguished Professor of English at Ohio State, and along with Frederick Aldama, David Herman, and me, one of the founders of Project Narrative. Brian is one of the most influential scholars of postmodernism in the world. Brian's work consistently demonstrates his rare and remarkable gift for combining deep knowledge of literature, culture, and scholarship with original and insightful ways of thinking about all three. Brian is the author of Postmodernist Fiction, Constructing Postmodernism, The Obligation Toward the Difficult Whole, and the Cambridge Introduction to Postmodernism. Brian has also co-edited multiple volumes of essays, including the Project Narrative Center collection on teaching narrative theory that he did with David Herman and me. Brian has a long association with the journal Poetics Today, having served for many years as associate editor and then co-editor. From 2015 to 2019, Brian was the journal's editor-in-chief. Brian's currently working on a book on the poetics of science fiction and another on narrative and poetry. His work on narrative and poetry is especially relevant for today's discussion. So, Brian, is there anything you want to say about the poems you've selected before we read them aloud? Well, thanks for having me in, Jim. Um, I brought four little poems, story poems, um, Three of them are actually song lyrics. Uh, one's a nursery rhyme. Um, the other two are story poems in the ballad tradition. And then one uh, is, a, is a more properly literary poem. I think they're akin to each other, and they share this feature that you just mentioned, that they're built around uh, very large structural holes. Um, when we talk about stories having holes, that's normally a negative. Um, it means that, you know, the plot doesn't work. Um, in this case, the holes are functional. Um, in a couple of the cases, you might say they are um, normal holes, the kind that um, make the narrative work properly. And in a couple of cases, they go beyond that. They're extraordinary holes. And um, I, I hope we can um, dig out what that right. what that means before we're done. Yeah. Okay. Just one one little footnote. It's also like there's a progression. The holes kind of get bigger as we go. They do, right? and right. and yeah. deeper, or yeah, right. some other metaphor. Okay. All right. Well, uh, why don't we start? Um, you're going to read the first uh, nursery rhyme, right? So this is a nursery rhyme, um, uh, an Israeli Hebrew language nursery rhyme, which one sings to toddlers. Um, I'm going to not sing it to uh, to avoid embarrassing myself, but only read out the Hebrew, and then Jim will read out the uh, English translation of it. So the nursery rhyme goes like this: Yonatan Hakatan Ratz Baboker El Hagan Hutipes Al Haetz Efrochim Chipes 
אוי ואבוי לו לשובב, חור גדול במקנסיו, הוא טיפס על העץ, אפרוחים חיפש. אוקיי, זה נייס להיות הרית'ם. Here's the English. Little boy Jonathan runs one morning to the park. He climbs up a tree looking for little birdies. Naughty, naughty rascal. A big hole in his pants. He climbs up a tree looking for little birdies. So what, what, what do you want to highlight here? Where's the hole and how, how do we interpret it? So um, this little nursery rhyme was used by... Um, Uh, my mentors at Tel Aviv, Menachem Perry and Mayor Sternberg, to launch a, um, an article that they wrote about gaps and gap filling um, in, a, in a biblical narrative. Um, and they chose this nursery rhyme um, because it's so simple. Um, and um, uh, even a toddler understands perfectly well what has happened. Um, and yet the poem doesn't say the crucial thing, which is that Presumably, Yonatan got a hole in his pants from climbing on that tree. Um, it's a story with a hole in it. And I, you know, it's, it's even more perfect in that it's a story about a hole with a hole oh, in it. Right. <laughs> um, and nobody can doubt that that's what happened, um, even though it doesn't say the climbing in the tree is what produced the hole. He might have had a hole in his pants before he ever started climbing, for all we know. But that's not the way anybody in the world has ever understood this. Um, and it's a normal hole in the sense that even toddlers get it, right. right? That this was caused by Jonathan climbing the tree. Yes. Okay. Excellent. Um, so one of the things that stands out uh, to me is the sort of the move between the first stanza, you know, which ends with uh, Jonathan looking for the little birdies and the beginning of the second with that naughty, naughty rascal um, Thing. And I think that's, you know, it's sort of we shift from narration to, you know, kind of a name calling even. Uh, what do you make of that? And how, how do you see that working in the in connection with the, you know, the narrative and the holiness of it and so on? Well, I, I, I see this as as being, you know, a, a, a turn to address Jonathan and, okay. it, it, and and also to address, of course, the listener. Right. right so this right. is. This is a didactic nursery rhyme. Um, it's about, um, you know, not climbing trees in your good pants, and it's about not seeking out uh, fledglings. Uh -huh. um, so there's, uh, there's an element here of, of um, uh, justice being done. Uh, and I think at that moment when the poem turns and uh, – um, uh, says oi voi voi to, to Jonathan, um, it's, it's uh, got a double audience, right? It speaks yeah, to yeah. the character in the poem, but also speaks to the child listening to the poem. Yeah, yeah, great. Um, so one of the other things that sort of is maybe obvious but worth commenting on is the uh, repetition, right? So it, right. both stanzas end in the English, he climbs up a tree looking for little birdies. Um, you know, to what extent is this sort of just formulaic or you know what 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 way is it kind of functional like is the second uh iteration of that uh you know different because it's at the end of the uh the end of the nursery rhyme right i i don't see that those those um uh end lines as advancing the story at all right, right they're right. they're returning to an earlier moment in the story um their effect is mainly mm -hmm. 
the musical effect of refrain and also a kind of uh, a kind of expressive or emotive effect, right? It underscores the lyric dimension of the poem. It is, after all, uh, a little song. Um, so um, it, it's the um, a non-narrative effect, it seems to me, uh, mainly. Yeah. Okay. All right. Good. Um, well, I think that you know you touch on a bunch of things that will come off of it with in relationship to the some of the, the other selections. Uh, anything further on uh, Jonathan? No, I'm I'm interested in this one just because it sets up a kind of baseline. This right. is the normal yeah. function of gaps of this kind, right? Um, and I want to move on from there to um, another one that's also, in a way, a conventional gap. Um, and then beyond that to, to much l- more extraordinary uses yeah. of gap in, in this kind of um, narrative poem. Okay, good. Well, let's, let's go to the next one then. So the next one, um, I wanted to have a, um, a traditional ballad uh, in that British uh, border ballads tradition, um, which are very often um, uh, gappy. Um, in in crucial ways. Um, and I learned a good deal about this from our mutual friend, Alan Palmer, who wrote mm-hmm. an excellent essay about uh, gaps in uh, folk ballads and in the country and Western songs that are modeled on folk ballads. Um, and um, his point was that uh, crucial um, uh, elements of the story that mm-hmm. the, that make the narrative make sense in particular, motive and rationale um, simply are, are left out of mm-hmm. um, many ballads in the ballad tradition, and that that's carried over into uh, the more commercial product of, of country and Western um, uh, music industry. So I wanted to have one of those, and and um, the one I, I chose is a, a, a ballad called When I Was on Horseback, um, and I was thinking of the version um, recorded by um, the British folk rock band Steel Eye Span in 1972. Of course, it's been uh, covered by other people, but um, that was the version I was thinking of. Um, and it seems to me a classic case of a, a narrative poem, a, a folk ballad, um, with an enormous gap in it. Um, so a, a poem with a hole. Okay. You want, want to read it? Okay. When I was on horseback, wasn't I pretty? When I was on horseback, wasn't I gay? Wasn't I pretty when I entered Cork City and met with my downfall on the 14th of May? Six jolly soldiers to carry my coffin, six jolly soldiers to march by my side, and it's six jolly soldiers take a bunch of red roses, then for to smell them as we march along. Beat the drums slowly and play the pipes only, play up the dead march as we go along. And bring me to Tipperary and lay me down easy. I'm a young soldier that never done wrong. When I was on horseback, wasn't I pretty? When I was on horseback, wasn't I gay? Wasn't I pretty when I entered Cork City and met with my downfall on the 14th of May? Okay. So um, I think there are lots to talk about here. Maybe we could start with, um, you know, where is the I located uh, in time and space? Uh, you know, and, and is that something that's gappy? Uh, the way I read it, it is right. It, th- there's there's two um, strong possibilities that the, this this eye is speaking from his deathbed, mm-hmm. and he's giving, in effect, the instructions for his funeral. This is a last will and testament. 
Um, and that's the, in a way, realistic way yeah. of handling yeah. it. But it could be framed differently. It could be a posthumous voice speaking, as it were, during the funeral, um, from yeah. inside the coffin, on his way uh, to his gravesite. Um, and then it becomes uncanny and uh, and supernatural. Right. And I think right. that can't be ruled out as a way of right. reading this. Even if it's the um, even if we favor the first version, there's a, a touch of uncanniness to that voice, um, you know, dictating the funeral procession. Right. Okay. Good. Now, do you think it would be fair to say that there we might have like a determinate ambiguity about where we would locate? But but some of the other questions, uh, unlike the nursery rhyme, right, where we can fill in the gap confidently and so on. Some of these other ones, we can't even get to determinate ambiguity. Right. Like, like you know, what happened in, uh, when he entered Cork City, right? Right. That's the crucial one, right? So right. The, the choice between the posthumous voice versus the, the deathbed voice, um, we can entertain both of those. And, right. and they don't, uh, you know, they, they don't trouble us very much that right. the two possibilities are, are there. But the problem of what happened to him, um, which is – which is uh, an enormous gap in the story, um, that's more problematic. Um, you know, um, the story is inviting us to think of this as a very concrete, specific occasion. Um, it was a specific day in a specific right. place, Cork City, the 14th of May. Right. Uh, um, and we want to know what happened, what what. Yeah. What downfall was it that he met? Right, He's right. A, There's yeah. a strong narrative question there, right? I mean, it sort of raises Enormous, that. Enormous, right? 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 Yeah. Um, and we get no answer. We get nothing um, that, uh, I mean, we can generate hypotheses, right. right? Right, He's a soldier, so maybe it was a violent encounter. Maybe he was ambushed. Uh, maybe... Right. He got involved in a bar fight. Um, uh, there's, you know, uh, <laughs> <Right>. possibilities, <laughs> but but nothing to go on um, yeah, yeah. that would allow us to fill in the gap. Yeah, at least not in the in the text that we have. Right, right. So then, uh, does it make sense to sort of think about this um, as sort of moving from narrative to something more lyric, or in the sense of, all right, well, there's that, you know. I'm not going to tell you about that, but this is how I feel on my deathbed or as I watch my, you know, funeral procession or something like that. That be, maybe takes over, um, or is that is that sort of, you know, reducing the the ballad in another way? Um, well, maybe it is in the sense that I, you know we do still have a, a sense of strong narrativity here, right. right? So there's there's lyric in competition with narrative here, good, um, yeah. and there. Um, you know, uh, uh, there, there's there's a kind of uh, um, struggle for power over how we're uh -huh. going to grasp this this poem as an, as as story or as uh, expression, right? Yeah. Um, if it weren't for the specificity of the details, yeah. we might uh, go over to the narrative, uh, the lyric reading rather than the narrative one. Yeah, yeah. But. It's that specificity that it keeps the narrative uh, grounded, it alive, sort of in that. Right? It keeps that gap yeah. quite open, yeah. And we our curiosity about that, yeah, yeah. Um, so maybe you could say a little bit about the tradition, uh, right? You know, so you, you said one of the things you wanted was something from the ballad tradition, and maybe exactly. So as I as I learned from our colleague Richard Green, um, who's a who's a folk ballad expert, um, this is one version of a. Um, uh, a traditional type of uh, folk ballad, 
um, who, the the sort of um, Ur version of it is something is a is a poem called the Unfortunate Rake, um, uh, and there are multiple versions. It, it migrated um, to the United States. Um, it's uh, akin to Streets of Laredo mm-hmm. and St. James Infirmary. And what they share in common is that these are poems about a young man who falls victim to syphilis and dies of venereal oh, okay. disease, yeah. um, which is precisely the missing part of the story in this version of it. Yeah. There are some other earlier versions that are that are more complete and more explicit. Um, but here, that element is is gone. And you would not necessarily guess, if you didn't know from the tradition, that that's the kind of story that's being told here. And it actually doesn't make very much sense with all the details, right? Um, yeah. The downfall being uh, dated precisely to the 14th of May right. seems a little bit at, at odds with, with the, dying of venereal disease. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right. It just seems like a you know, sudden blow or right. one right. event. Yeah. Right. yeah, But that's the tradition it belongs to. And of course, once we supply that, then it's hard not to see that story. So, so, right, right. right. Partly because we have the desire to fill the gap. Right. Right. And the tradition, you know, the tradition gives us uh, uh, an option uh, for filling yeah. the gap. Yeah, 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 good. Okay, so here we also have, um, you know, and this maybe goes back to some of the lyric, but the, the, the lyric dimension of it, the repetition, you know, not just the first stanza and the last stanza, but, you know, the six jolly soldiers, uh you know things like that. Um, what do what do you make of the function of the repetition here? So, sort of, yeah. So once yeah. again, that, that's you know that refrain like material and the and the parallelistic structures, uh, you know, give us the 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 lyric dimension of the poem, right? And that counterbalances that the narrative appeal of those specifics, those place names, um, so that. We're, we're, you know, we're getting both, you know, the expression of uh, this emotion of despair, the deathbed utterance, um, at the same time as the invitation to think, to fill in the story, so to think narratively happen. about right. the material. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. Um, and just to maybe make one uh, comparison, another comparison with the nursery rhyme, right? And so we... We talked about the naughty, naughty rascal as kind of this double address. Um, here, we may have a, a more sort of stronger version of an internal nar- addressee, narratee. Um, y- you know, the wasn't I pretty who's, you know, almost already addressed a, an interlocutor. Um, As though somebody were standing at the deathbed, yeah, leaning exactly. over to hear his last words, and right. th- this is who's being addressed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so, I mean, in a way, there's that 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 little kind of the drama of the telling gets, uh, you know, another sort of level of interest. Too. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for me, this is an example of what, what we might think of as a as a conventional gap, right? That that the ballad. Con, uh, tradition um, um, allows us to expect such gaps, okay. right? And mm-hmm. and possibly uh, not be too troubled by them, um, even though they make for part of the intrigue of uh, yeah. the, the the narrative. Right, right, right. So maybe yeah, we shift to that that play between the 
what's there and what's not there as part of the interest right. as opposed to in a more conventional thing we want fill the gap and then we that provides the main source of our interest right what just happened and here again you know it. it's as though the gap came with the the whole package yeah, it's a right, whole um, right. genre package in this case yeah 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 good good uh, anything further on this one before we move on? Um, I think maybe not. I think that's I think th- that's what yeah. interests me about it. Um, I do recommend um, um, anyone who yeah. wanted to follow up on this to go um, find that Steel Eye Span version uh, yeah. online, which is which is hair raisingly uh, dark, yeah. um, and and makes a very interesting use of the that repeated refrain um at yeah the, maybe at the s- end. You say a little bit more about that right right and, and so, so it's it's yeah. uh it's sung uh by a solo voice by Maddie Pryor the first three stanzas and then um after a long instrumental break she returns and begins that that last uh, uh stanza and then suddenly all the male voices in the band join her and there's this yeah. chorus um, and uh, it's um, um, it really um, sells the lyric aspect of the of the song uh, at that point because again that, yeah. that that repeated stanza doesn't add anything narratively it's right. ex- ex- yeah. it's exactly identical we've learned all this before yeah yeah okay so the moment of death or the moment of the funeral whatever we saw that then sort of gets elevated mm-hmm. in a way by the, the the treatment of it in this in their song. Yeah, okay, good. All right, well, um, tell us about the next one. Okay, so I want to change languages again and look at a, um, a poem by Federico García Lorca, um, the um, Spanish-language, Iberian-Spanish poet uh, of the years between the, the world wars, um, and who is working from a, from, um, a ballad tradition of his own, a, a, a Spanish-language uh, tradition of folk narrative songs um but in this case has been has adapted it um in in a uh, in a, li- uh, a literary direction um it it struck me uh, that you know maybe there's an uh, a setting of this poem uh, uh as a as a sung piece and i thought thought maybe i would find um a, a, a spanish composer who'd done it but in fact um, it's a uh, Finnish composer, oh. uh, Rautavara, um, set this song, the Cancion de Henete, um, from 1924. He set it in 1973. Um, so mm. there's no Spanish version of it. So it has become, after the fact, long after the fact, um, song lyric. Um, but it's already intended as a kind of simulation of a song lyric. It is a Cancion de Henete, the song of the writer. Um, yeah. okay. And another song about somebody on horseback. Um, and uh, uh, a poem in which the gap is strategic and self-conscious um, and highly artful um, and, and even more enigmatic than um, the, the folk ballad tradition. Okay, well, why don't, why don't you read, so read I'll, the Spanish? So I'll try to read the original, yeah. and, then, and then you, Jim, please read the translation, right? Got it. So, Cancion de Henete, Córdoba, lejana y sola, Jaca negra, luna grande, y aceitunes en mi alforja, aunque sepa los caminos, yo nunca llegaré a Córdoba. Por el llano, por el viento, Jaca negra, luna roja, 
la muerte me está mirando desde las torres de Córdoba. ¡Ay, qué camino tan largo! ¡Ay, mi jaca velerosa! ¡Ay, que la muerte me espera antes de llegar a Córdoba! Córdoba, lejana y sola. Ok, now the English. Córdoba, distant and lonely. Black pony, large moon, in my saddlebag, olives. Well as I know the roads, I shall never reach Córdoba. Over the wind, through the plain, black pony, red moon, death keeps a watch on me from Córdoba's towers. Oh, such a long way to go, and oh, my spirited pony. Ah, but death awaits me before I ever reach Córdoba. Córdoba, distant and lonely. So again, uh, what's interesting to me is how rich with narrative possibility this uh, poem is, and yet uh, we can't figure out what's going on. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the writer is uh, on a mission of some kind, and it's a doomed one. He's, he's bound to meet his death before he gets to his destination. Um, so the stakes are very high, um, but we don't know why he's pursuing this mission. He, we don't know what it is, and we don't know why it's inevitable that he'll meet his death on the road. Yeah, yeah. And, and so th- in a way, and this one, I think it's at least worth you know, playing with the idea that there is this bigger narrative that we don't know, and what we're getting is the song during this particular moment or moments right so so it's like it is a lyric in this way of reading it but it's a lyric which depends upon the idea that it's part of some other larger narrative which which we don't know and and sort of that that dependence means that the narrative is in some ways almost as important as the as the lyric uh expression of you know going toward one's death, uh, going toward the, the destination. And, right. There's, and so there's, a, there's a kind of paradoxical sense in which this is a very eventful poem, yeah. despite the fact that um, we can't understand the events. We, we don't know what they we are. We lean forward um, you yeah. know, to, to grasp the events. Um, he's on the road. He's moving. He's riding. Uh, uh, he's anticipating uh, uh, his own death. Um, all... Uh, all things we're really interested in, right. um, and this poem is not going to satisfy us. Right. We might even add to them, you know, well, if you know you're going to die, if you keep going, why do you keep going? Right? Clear, clearly, there's something else right. we don't have an answer to, right? Cl- clearly, there's something that, you know, that's more important to him in yeah. this mission than, than his, his own, own life. His own life, yeah. Right. right, right, right. And then that adds to this sense of, all right, this is what I'm doing, you know. It's the, the kind of gloom of... Uh, being in this position, right, in a way, right. So it seems to me it has some of the same folk ballad features mm-hmm. as when I was on horseback, even though it's coming from a, a different national language tradition. But they're parallel folk traditions. Um, one of the first um, people to write a monograph about Garcia Lorca in English, uh, Roy Campbell, a, a, a poet himself, um, um, uh, associated this poem with. The border ballads um, uh-huh. uh, explicitly, he said, this reminds me of Scottish border ballads in which, um, you know, um, key things are missing. 
Um, I, he didn't spell out that that was the intrigue of it, but I think that's that is what he's reacting to. That's what it. That's what the border ballads sound like too, right? Right. So Garcia uh, Lorca is 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 um, simulating that uh, uh, poetry in that tradition. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, so here again, we have some uh, repetitions, uh, but before we get to them, right? I want to ask you about the. Uh, uh, saddlebag olives, right? In a way, that there's a kind of particularity there that's different from, you know, the repetitions about the moon and the pony and right. things like that. Well, I think that uh, think of the, those details in the same category as 14th of May and Cork City okay, in the yeah. in the in the other one. The 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 things that anchor the the story in a world, uh-huh. and here. It, as you say, the the uh, olives in the saddlebag seems um, uh, um, ex- extraordinarily specific, right? Uh, and of course, then we are in tr- try to try to work out um, a narrative motivation for it. So um, he's you know left in a hurry. The only thing he could grab was mm. some <laughs> olives that he stores. Right. That's, that's what he's going to be able, able to you know uh, keep up his strength sustain with sustain him on his journey on or, the road. Or, right? Right, yeah. But there's another dimension. I think it's it's also possible that Gar- uh, Garcia Lorca is 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 signaling um, a kind of. Sp- Spanishness, but beyond that, a kind of Andalusian character to this, okay. right? He's writing out of his own region, the south of Spain, Andalusia, olive country. Um, uh, you know, the 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 part of the country that was under Moorish occupation for the longest time. Um, etymologically, both of those words, aceitunas, which is olives, and alforja, which is saddlebag, are words of Arabic origin, uh-huh. um, which I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure that a Spanish speaker would necessarily hear that in those words, uh-huh, but okay. I think it's striking that that you know those those are the 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 words that Spanish absorbed from Arabic and and maybe for Garcia Lorca it did have an element of local color to it. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. All right. Good. Good. Well, let's talk a little about the repetitions here, and you know I think we got sort of more repetition with a difference than we did, say, in uh, When I Was on Horseback, right? So we have the sequence, uh, large moon, red moon. Uh, what about that one? So it seems it seems to me that, that um, uh, it is repetition, and the difference is uh, a kind of um, uh, inflection of the moon image Towards the blood red death that he's on his okay. way towards, right? This is yeah. a blood red moon, maybe, right? Right. Okay. Um, um, as he gets closer and closer to that, that you know, yeah, doom right, moment. Right, right. Right. Yeah. It's not a yellow moon or right. Anything. Right. Right. So, and then uh, with the pony, right? We have uh, black pony twice, and then spirited pony. Um, and that's you know the spirited also such a long way to go and oh my spirited pony, ah uh, but death awaits me. It's sort of the spirited somehow you know stands out in that yes. concatenation of, right, of right. words. Right. It's um, uh, it's a um, Hakan Valerosa in the original. So. Um, Valorosa is, you know, akin to our uh, valorous, right? Uh-huh. This is a brave pony. This is a uh, um, uh, heroic poet, a, a pony, right? Okay. Um, carrying him to, towards this fatal encounter. Uh, 
I think that whole that whole stanza, uh, oh, such a long way to go, and so on. Yeah. Um, that's the that's the the signal of of the lyricness of the poem, right? right? And that's, that was like the lyric climax. That's the lyric climax, right? right. And and those exclamations, I k camino tan largo, and you know, oh, such a long way to go in the in the English. Um, I and O, those are the marks of lyric. Those are the expressions that come, you know, from the heart. And um, and so the, you know, narrative sort of gives way at this point to to pure lyric. And then we get the repetition of Of the the early early lines. Right, right. Called the Balechane Sola. Right. So in this case, then maybe do you feel like there's more... A sort of force or sort of the the audience understands the distant and lonely sort of in a different way than you know in the first uh iteration of it right right and i think it it's become you know more laden with the the, the sort of um he, the heaviness the doom of, yeah. of awaiting the awaiting the writer yeah um yeah. I think I think it's intriguing among 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 the other things that we can't determine about this poem. We can't determine when this might have happened in right. world yeah. history, right? Yeah. It's yeah. it's a huge it's a huge gap uh that surrounds sort of the entire world of the poem, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um uh, uh uh apparently uh it, in some place Garcia Lorca said that he was thinking of a Sort of uh, adventurer, soldier of fortune from the Moorish Middle Ages, from the ninth century, and um, who was a thorn in the side of the Emir of Cordoba, a rebel, and mm. and um, so that he was thinking of the adventure story of this medieval Moorish knight, um, and that's a perfectly plausible right, right. world to set this in. Yeah. But on the other hand, that same Roy Campbell, the poet that I. Uh, the English poet that I mentioned before, who saw the connection with the border ballads, yeah. he immediately associates the Cancion de Genete with uh, dangers on the roads of Andalusia as late as the 1930s. Right? right? That okay. you were yeah. that yeah. you were had to be on your lookout for highwaymen and horse thieves right. uh, riding around. Um, uh, in the 20th century. Yeah. And there's nothing in the world that prevents this from being a 20th century poet poem, yeah. which is right. the way Roy Campbell hears yeah, it. Yeah, so again, we go back to gaps, right? So the, both of these are plausible, but neither one is better than the other necessarily. Right, and for, of, me, for me, this this goes beyond a kind of functional gap or strategic gap, you know, the gap of Jonathan's yeah. pants right. um, to, something, to something larger and, you know, approaching the metaphysical, right? We're, we're disappearing. The whole world is disappearing into this gap. We <laughs> really don't know where we are yeah. and when we are. Yeah, 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 right. And then just, so the focus is just on this speaker, on this horse, on this, you know, Un, the journey whose goal is really unspecified, and how he feels. Right. Right. right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. Okay. Good. Um, anything else on this one before we go on? No. I, and, and again, you know, what, what's what's appealing and intriguing this poem for me is that it, is how uh, it's bristling with eventfulness. It's an adventure story, yeah. um, and yet. It's an adventure that's disappearing yeah. before our eyes, almost right. down down yeah. a hole, yeah. and we can't we can't see um, yeah. inside. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, good. For me, that's that's the that's the uh, appeal of that. Poem. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of the magic of the right. whole thing. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And well, now we come to 
Bob Dylan. Now we come so. to Bob Dylan. So um, I thought I associated these uh, this poem uh, of Garcia Lorca with Bob Dylan's lyric all along the watchtower arbitrarily. But the more I thought about it, the less mm-hmm. arbitrary it seemed. It's once again uh, a, a lyric about uh, horsemen mm-hmm. and approaching doom. Um, and um, now I begin to wonder if Dylan might even have had Lorca in mind. I can't find any place in the literature, uh, any evidence of Dylan having read Garcia Lorca. Okay. On the other hand, you know, why not, right? <laughs> uh, Could have happened. Um, you can never, you can never, uh, uh, you should never underestimate uh, Bob Dylan, right? He might have okay. read it. So this is a famous song all along the Watchtower, mainly from Jimi Hendrix's cover uh, um, of the song from 1968, um, which which is one of the few instances, I think, maybe the only instance in which a cover of a Dylan song is arguably better than the original. Um, but so this is what Bob Dylan wrote. Um, well, you're not going to sing it like Jimi Hendrix. I am not. Okay. I will. I will pretend it's a poem, <laughs> okay. not a song. So all along the watchtower. There must be some kind of way out of here, said the joker to the thief. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Businessmen, they drink my wine. Plowmen dig my earth. None of them all along the line know what any of it is worth. No reason to get excited, the thief, he kindly spoke. There are many here among us who feel that life is but a joke. But you and I, we've been through that. And this is not our fate. So let us not talk falsely now. The hour's getting late. All along the watchtower, princes kept the view, while all the women came and went, barefoot servants too. Outside, in the distance, a wildcat did growl. Two riders were approaching. The wind began to howl. Yeah, so this one seems, uh, you know, I'd start by saying it has a lot of good bits, but how do we put it together, right? Uh, you know, these three stanzas, uh, all right, so there's some kind of exchange between the Joker and the Thief. But what does that have to do with All Along the Watchtower, our title? And and then that last, you know, stanza, we get a uh, different speaker, seemingly, right? We, we leave dialogue and we go to, you know, the poet, poet speaker of a sort, Um what do we do with this? And we maybe even go to a different world, a different, <laughs> a different place altogether. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, this seems. But to there's be... only one watchtower in the title, right? Yes. So, so we're not saying all along the watchtowers. Then we could go. Oh wait, yeah. But go ahead. I was going to say that this seems to me evidence of how deeply Dylan had absorbed the folk ballad tradition. Okay. And had uh, capitalized on it, and. Um, uh, uh, in, in a certain way, extended it, right? So uh, he takes a song with a gap, something like when I was on horseback, uh-huh. and he makes the gap complete. He, <laughs> he envelops the whole situation, the whole story, the whole world of this poem in the gap, right? Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, uh, and the end result is, is you know, perfectly enigmatic, Um we don't know uh, whether, for instance, we should place the Joker and the Thief in the same world as the Watchtower. Yeah, yeah. And if we do, do we place the Joker and the Thief inside, inside the walled the city, city, presumably, yeah. or outside? Right. Are they the two riders who are approaching? Right. Right. 
Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, it's certainly tempting to read it that way just in order to give this a kind of uh, closure, right? Yeah, right? We return to them. Right. Um, but on the other hand, um, the Joker says there must be some kind of way out of here. Yeah. Which we can take metaphorically, we must, you know, there must be some way to get out of this situation we're in. Yeah. Or more literally, there must be some way to get out of this city right. because something is approaching. Right, right. right. Um, so um, right. even the, 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 the topography flips yeah. between the first part and the second part, depending upon whether we want to place them inside or right. outside. Right, right. And then, and then just in terms of the sort of the impulse to narrativize, right? So if we place them inside and we take the out of here as something more literal, then we, in terms of narrative, narrativization, we could think about, okay, the two writers from inside are going to come out and meet the two writers who are approaching. Something uh, like that. So, I mean, right. again, you know, but then, so what? Right, 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 right. right. We could go through the poem picking out the details which allow us to, to solve it one way, yeah. to put them inside, right? Yeah. There are many here among us who feel that life is but a joke. Here among us. So perhaps inside, yeah. right? Yeah. Us, the, the, the people in the city or... or, or uh, um, in you know, protected by the walls, um, but then there's no necessity to to link those details up in that way, right? right? Um, there's nothing in the poem that compels us to do that, right? Um, so it it feels like it's it's hovering a few feet above the ground. It never quite uh, gets grounded, <laughs> right? Never you know? lands, yeah. Yeah, and here, also, I think the temporality or, you know, the location in time, right? So we have princes, um, we have a watchtower, um, but we also have, you know, many of us uh, think that life is, who feel that life is but a joke, right? That doesn't seem as much of a kind of a medieval attitude as we think of as a more right. contemporary uh, so, one. So here, uh, you know, again, I, I'm... Um, I, I like to entertain the idea that Dylan was aware of Cancion de Henete. Here's a poem uh-huh. that could be in the Middle Ages. Yeah. So the Joker then we understand is a jester, mm-hmm. and um, you know the, the the thief then is a medieval thief, right? <laughs> um, um, but there's there's uh, no reason to commit ourselves to that. It could just as easily be a 20th century conversation between a Joker and a thief, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, more like the Godfather. Um, than mm-hmm. like uh, than like the Middle Ages, yeah, right? Um, yeah. And and the the indeterminacy is it seems to me complete here, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and what we get is is only a kind of uh, a fringe of narrative yeah. eventfulness yeah. around a, a a really deep dark hole. Yeah. Um, and yeah. and that seems to me a kind of you know final uh, um, step in you know the evolution progress, of small stories with big holes in them. Yeah, um, right. And then would you say then that the become the interest of it uh, sort of gets displaced onto that uh, sort of um, 
performance of the whole, right? It's some the kind right. of a meta, right? Uh, a meta ballad or, or right. something and, like that. And right? yet, and yet, you know, the, there, there is some, some narrative interest, right? And yeah. yet, we, you know, we do sort of lean forward and say, the writers, who are the writers? Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, why is everyone keeping the view from the watchtowers? Um, yeah. What's the threat or what's the expectation? Um, what, you know, yeah. uh, all of this, and then of course, where is the Joker? Where are the Joker and Thief? Where is this conversation taking? place mm-hmm. uh, um, how are they related to that crisis apparently that's going on in the in the yeah. final stanza yeah 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 and and that keeps us uh engaged as co-constructors of narrative mm-hmm. um, despite the fact that um, we're engaging with the narrative at the last possible moment before it disappears into the hole right 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 yeah you know, and maybe even you know, going along with what you're saying about our leaning forward, or who are those two writers? There is that a little bit of a kind of um, progression in terms of the dialogue, right? The 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 Joker complains, the the thief uh, tries to reassure him, right? And then, so, but there's not a <laughs> nothing happens in that, and then we switch, right? right. And we go go to this this third thing, right? So right. so we're we're following, and then we have to stop following and go somewhere else. Right. That, that's right. all part of it. Yeah. So it seems to me that at this point, the, the sort of normal hole, something like the hole of Jonathan uh, in the nursery rhyme, and the, and the conventional hole, the hole that we find in folk ballads, has become something else. That, that, that yeah. you know, the, the, the uh, quantitative hole, uh, the size of the hole, has created something qualitatively different, right? So this right, is right. this is more yes. like yeah. this is more like you know um, the, the black hole of astrophysics, right? Um, where you know no light comes out, no yeah. no matter uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. can be can be detected, and all that we've got left is that event horizon, which is for our purposes, you know. Brilliantly named, right? Yeah. The event horizon, <laughs> right, the last right. moment before anything can be seen before yeah. it disappears in the black hole. Right. That's more or less the condition of all along the watchtower. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and also thinking about things which disappear. Like we don't have, like all the other ones, we have this repetition of beginning and end, and so we don't have that here, uh, and so on. Um, you want to comment at all on why it's a joker and a thief rather than a, a knight and a you know, uh, well, a page or something. Or? We could say this is this is um, of a piece with Dylan's interest in in the lower depths, right? Okay. These are mm-hmm. these are the outcasts. These are the, mm-hmm. um, the 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 bottom dwellers of this world, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, um, uh, it's it's hard to reconcile all those details and make them into a into a world yeah, right? Um, right it's right, yeah. it's a kind of anti world it's a kind of um disappearing yeah. world yeah. Um, yeah yeah so maybe as we move toward the end here um do you want to offer any kind of general um reflections on sort of is there let me ask it this way is there some kind of a uh, relationship between the progression that you've taken us through and your sense of like the aesthetic quality of these things or, you know, the kinds of things you're more interested in or right. anything I, like that? You know, I would want to claim more the latter, that for me, the, you know, the larger the hole, um, uh-huh. the, the more I'm intrigued. And, okay. <laughs> and I, I'm especially interested in those narrative uh, 
narrative and lyric at the same time, poems, in which the event material is at a minimum, Mm -hmm. is really reduced to a trace, and the hole into which the narrative disappears is at the maximum. And that seems to me aesthetically uh, appealing and Uh interesting. And, and challenging and for, challenging right yeah, yeah, um, you yeah. want to understand how how it could possibly work yeah um, <laughs> how this how you know how right. this could right. exist even it's yeah. it's at the moment just before it vanishes yeah right so just to go back to where you started with uh, you know Sternberg and Perry and sort of gap filling and so on it's almost like you've taken it to the Logical extent. We're interested in gap filling, and here's Brian McHale interested in the biggest gaps possible. Right. For them, mm-hmm. gap filling um, is on the whole functional. Yeah, right? It, right. It keeps, it, it's the engine that keeps turning over and the narrative driving forward because of it. And, right. of, and of course, they're right. In yeah. you know many many uh, exactly. places, this is what gaps are for, and that's yeah. what they do. Right. Yeah. But yeah. then there's a gap that becomes a gap for its own sake. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, right. And that's a, uh, I think, a different aesthetic quality, yeah. and one that I find really appealing. Yeah. 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 Terrific. Um, all right. Any final thoughts, Brian? No, I think I'm happy. Yeah. Well, I'm very happy too. So, uh, thank you so much. Um, I just want to say a couple things as we uh, wind up. Um, so, I want to thank everyone for listening. Uh, and uh, also to say, uh, you know, we're happy to get feedback from our listeners. So you can send it to us at projectnarrative at osu.edu, Project Narrative with one word, um, or on our Facebook page, uh, or our Twitter account. With Twitter, we are at PN Ohio State. And finally, uh, I want to say, please join us for the next Project Narrative podcast which Robin Warhol and I will record on December 15th. Robin will read and discuss Zadie Smith's short story, The Waiter's Wife. Thank you all again. Mm-hmm.